I'm Joel Chasnoff, and this is Inside Israel. As for this week, you know, as uh, as I've mentioned before, my goal here is always to bring you sort of the perspective from the Israeli side of it, what Israelis are talking about, their psychology. And I got to admit, I feel a little bit of a conflict because on the one hand, I really want to bring you that authentic point of view. But on the other hand, I realize that in doing that, it might go against a lot of what you've always thought about Israel or been brought up to believe about Israel in terms of supporting it wholeheartedly and loving it unconditionally. Uh, not that I'm going to tell you anything that should make you stop loving it, but part of the authentic point of view at times is how, as you'll see today, how frustrated a lot of Israelis are. And I'm going to share their view on the government and current situations in a way that might contradict what you would typically hear at a standard pro-Israel um, fundraising event. Uh, but I think that's important. Um, I really don't want it to change how you feel about the people of Israel or the country of Israel. Um, I want you to love Israel. I want you to support it the way I do. But I do want also at the same time to show you what Israelis are thinking and feeling. And at the moment, some of that is negative. And I'm going to share that with you just because I want to be honest. But I want to put that out there because it is a little bit of a conflict for me uh, that we're you know, by sharing the whole story, you get parts of the narrative that you weren't always used to. So on that note, let's begin. Uh, I'm going to begin with a word. Those of you who subscribe to my newsletter, which is a lot of you, Hebrew is magic. You know that I love Hebrew words. I feel like in general, language is a great key into the insight of what people are thinking and feeling. And one of the big words going around Israel in this last week is Impotent, which is Aleph Yud Mem Pe Vav Nun Tet Nun Tet. Impotent. And what does impotent mean? It means, well, impotent. It's one of, uh, it's a borrowed word from English. And a lot of Israelis are talking right now about the impotence of their government. And what does that mean? Well, it's on a few levels. One is that the ground invasion. Now, a lot of Israelis feel that the ground invasion should have begun already. To be fair, the average Israeli is not a military expert. And so there's an element of energy and wanting to begin that might not actually fit with what the military actually believes is a, red, a level of readiness that uh, is required to achieve. So just because the average Israeli is saying that the ground invasion should have begun that does not mean it actually really should have. However, there is a feeling that Israel now is being controlled by others. It's being controlled by mainly the United States. It's being controlled even a little bit by the world community, including the United Nations and what Hamas wants. Uh, one area we see this is with hostages. Uh, there is aid now going into Gaza, humanitarian aid, which I think many of us can agree that for the civilians, maybe aid is needed. We can debate how much, et cetera, but maybe aid is needed. However, many Israelis are upset that aid is going into Gaza when there are still 220, at last count, hostages, including children who are being held there. And it seems completely unconscionable to them that we that Israel is in some way approving or allowing or at least not pushing back on the flow of aid into Gaza 
when we have hostages there. They feel the number one issue on the table is getting our citizens out of Gaza before any aid would go in. So many Israelis are just completely perplexed that this would happen, and they're angry about it. Now, there's also belief that the reason this is happening is what they're speculating. And I'm also hearing from a few friends of mine who are journalists. What they're saying is that Biden, when he came to Israel, yes, on the surface, it was a show of support. But at the same time, it was really an attempt to frame and build the situation into what the United States needed, which was to have make sure aid would flow into Gaza. And there were conditions like we will not continue to support Israel fully with the finances, with the money you need, with the weaponry you need, unless you allow aid in and support us on the aid. So a lot of Israelis are feeling that the United States is actually, that they're actually the ones who are more in control right now, more than you know Israel itself. And so there's this feeling of the, that some have even said that we don't even have our own army anymore. Our army is being controlled by the president and military personnel in the U.S. Now, I'm not saying every Israeli feels like that, but a lot, a lot are, and a lot do have this feeling that Israel has lost a sense of its own self-determination by the way things are playing out. Certainly, a lot of people thought the ground invasion would have happened by now. Maybe it's better that it's not. Maybe this is giving more time to the Israeli military to prepare for what could be a very difficult and long mission. However, there's also concern among ordinary Israelis that we're giving Hamas more time to set up the booby traps that they're known to set up and prepare in the tunnels. And that an element of surprise that we might inflict has been lost by waiting so long. And again, the average person is not a military expert, but the average person is connected to the mission because we all have sons and uncles and fathers and cousins who are going in, or if we go in, they would be the ones going in. So it's very personal for us, and we want to make sure this is done correctly. Now, another element of this frustration with the government is with the two hostages which were released last night. And this, this also shows how quickly things change. When I sent out the reminder for this Zoom two days ago, I gave you a few topics we talk about. Lo and behold, in those 48 hours already, we've seen changes in what the top you know, topics and news items are. One of them is that two hostages were released uh, I, probably a little bit over 24 hours ago. These are two old women, age 79 and 85. That was partly the news, but now the bigger news, and I don't know if you saw this, is that one of the women participated in a press conference at the hospital. And in this press conference, I mean, a lot of people are saying, and I would kind of agree, that this was almost a pro-Hamas press conference, because what she said was that, first of all, she blamed the government and the army for being inept and not keeping her safe and even allowing this to happen. But she also spoke about how nicely she was treated by her captors in Gaza, that she was given food, that they had conversation, that they asked her questions, and that she said, I don't want to talk about politics, but they had questions about other aspects of Israeli life and that she did converse with them. And at the end, when she was turned over from the Red, Car from the Red Cross to Israel, apparently she shook hands with one of the captors. And uh, it was it was to many Israelis, this was just a, 
another example of the absolute dysfunction of the government, that no one vetted this, that no one ahead of time either said it's too early for a press conference or spoke to her about what she was going to say and maybe decide to not allow it or to give her some talking points or to say, for the sake of our mission, hold your true feelings inside. But this, it's just complete mismanagement. It's just a complete, uh, so I'm not even dropping the ball. No one was even aware that there was a ball to carry. And uh, to many Israelis, it just is another example of who is even in charge here. Uh, you know, I listened to a, a podcast, I think it was yesterday on the Times of Israel, and they mentioned that Netanyahu hasn't spoken to the Israeli people or the Israeli press in Hebrew for over two years. He's released some videos pre-recorded where he speaks in Hebrew and they're released, but he's done no interview with major Israeli press um, in, in over two years. And so there's just this feeling of like, where where is our leadership and who's really in charge here that's making Israelis frustrated? The, lead, the latest poll that I heard is that only 20% of Jewish Israelis and of Israel's population of 9 million, 7 million are Jewish, 2 million are are non-Jewish, mostly Arab, that only 20% of the Jewish population has faith in the current government, and only 7% of the Arab population has faith in the current government. Uh, and to me, that those two numbers are pretty much, as, that's as low as you can go. Those are the people I think who will always support no matter what, so I wouldn't necessarily uh, see that changing. But to think that 80% of your population is not has no faith in the government during a war um that's pretty frightening and this is this is something new for israel as well but again it feeds into that whole idea of who is running the show we see this with the volunteerism as well uh, right now there are fifteen thousand people a day in tel aviv still working very hard to take care of every aspect of Israeli society that needs to be done. And these are the same people who, for the most part, were protesting the government. They literally just changed their mission uh, and started putting together this, this humanitarian mission instead to work with their fellow Israelis. And it's not just sorting out clothes and sending clothes to soldiers uh, and finding homes for people in the South who've been displaced, which is so important, which is what they're doing. But it's also the high-tech community who is using facial recognition in order to help try to track down who is still missing and when they were last seen in certain videos that have been released by Hamas body cams. I mean, this is the work that a government should be doing. And instead, it's civilians who have been taking part of every aspect of saving Israeli society on the ground. And yet again, it's just another angle of how Israelis feel like there's really no one right now. There's no one who's who's really in charge. Um, you know, several leaders at this point have apologized. The chief of staff, which is like the top general of the army, the head of intelligence, uh, even Smotrich, who was a finance minister, uh, sort of apologized and said that finances would be reexamined and money allocated differently. But you know, these Netanyahu is not, by the way, and I think I think it's still eighty percent believe that he should apologize. Um, I don't see that happening. But in any case, just because they're apologizing doesn't mean that people suddenly have faith in them. And you know, this is a 
this adds to the chaos of the situation, the fact that a lot of Israelis don't know who to have faith in, they don't know who is in charge, and that is a big topic of conversation right now. So if you want to get into the psychology of, of the Israeli, that is certainly a part of it. Uh, I'll pause for a couple of questions that have already come in. Uh, the first is, can a new election be forced? Yes, new elections can be forced, but it would take a vote of no confidence, I think, or a certain co the coalition would have to fall apart. I think a lot of people believe that as frustrated as they are, this is not the right time to have a new election. This is not the right time for the chief of staff to step down. It's not the right time for the prime minister to resign, that we need to get through this. And one person I was speaking with last night, uh, who's kind of in the know, said that he believes what the right move is, and maybe this happened, maybe not, but the right move would be for Biden to say to Netanyahu, look, you're not gonna survive this, but now it's time to think about legacy. Do you want to be remembered as the one who worked with the world to finally bring some sort of peaceful situation to Gaza? Maybe it's a coalition of foreign countries and some UN presence in Gaza to keep it safe and healthy for the civilians, but keep Hamas out and destabilize. Do you want to be that person? Because it's time to think of legacy. It's not time to think about your future because your future is done. I don't know if Netanyahu has that ability, but you know, those in the know are saying that that would be the the direction to go. Um, but to answer your question, yeah, new elections could be forced, but most people, and myself included, as bad as it is, I think having a new government, this government fall apart and new government come in could could be even even worse. Um, what do Israelis feel the higher priority should be? Getting the hostages back or defeating Hamas? Wow, that is such a great question. Uh, on the one hand, we absolutely want to get those hostages back. The idea, it, this is this is another thing that Israelis are talking about. You know, the, the idea that we still have 220 of our own in Gaza, it's it's unthinkable. And it makes it colors this whole situation because even in when people have, I've heard this from people that even when they have good moments, maybe they're with friends or they're taking a break psychologically, they'll suddenly remember that there are there are 200. 20 of our own in Gaza and it it zaps their happiness away it takes they suddenly remember like wow we're there and it, it it's an element maybe of survivor guilt that makes them feel they can't and shouldn't even be enjoying life fully even for a few minutes just because we have our own um our own citizens there now some did say they felt a little bit of relief to hear this woman say that she was treated nicely when she was held hostage because it makes them it gives them a little hope that maybe our fellow citizens aren't being, you know, I had to even say it, but tortured or mistreated there. How much we can extrapolate from her one experience to everyone is unknown. But, um, you know, we have to grab onto hope anywhere we can. And some saw that as hopeful that perhaps people aren't being as treated as we might have imagined um, at first. But this is a big debate. Some people say we shouldn't even think about the hostages. Some think we should move forward as if they aren't a factor at all. It's the only way to completely take out Hamas, if that's even a thing, if that's even possible. While others say that we shouldn't do anything until we have all the hostages back. Uh, that's a huge ethical debate. It's something Israel hasn't faced before. I wish I had a clear answer for you. I don't. I do think that 
any situation that leaves Hamas still potent and able to attack us would be considered a failure by just about everyone. Um, so certainly Hamas needs to be defeated. But at the same time, it would be a huge loss if if the hostages do not all uh, come back. So unfortunately, there's a gray area. And that's a great question that I can't fully answer, but ho hopefully gave you some of the nuances there. Do well, a lot of questions coming in already. Do Israelis trust the UN? I wouldn't say that we have the biggest faith in the world in the UN. I mean, even now, the United Nations is not fully condemning the attacks on Israel. I think the I think the exact wording was um, someone at the United Nations, maybe even the head, said that these attacks by Hamas did not occur in a vacuum. I believe that was the exact quote. The idea being that as horrible as they were, Israel should not forget what might have led to it, or that if Israel had behaved differently, this wouldn't have happened. Um, the idea of that kids being kidnapped and people being beheaded would in any way be something you know a population deserves uh, i think is obviously uh, unthinkable and, and unacceptable anywhere else but for some reason when israel that kind of logic is used so israel does not have the biggest faith in israelis don't have the biggest faith in the un however you know the un does have a presence in south lebanon that has worked a little bit and i think it's more just the faith that it's less about faith. It's more the desire and the realization that Israel cannot govern on its own. Uh, the big fear is that Israel would go into Gaza and occupy it, and that we would simply take over northern Gaza, leaving them in the you know northern Gaza because once they're in the south, a lot of their missiles would then be unable to reach Israel. So the idea of clearing out northern Gaza is to uh, to take away a lot of their missile capability. But nobody thinks that Israel should be the one who permanently governs Gaza. We certainly don't want to occupy it. Uh, my question is, do Israel's leaders know that an international coalition is really the best solution? Or are they too are they too egocentric and thinking we can solve this all by ourselves? Um, so it's less an issue of trusting the UN. It's more believing that we do not want to be the ones doing it. We do not want our sons in Gaza, the same way we were in Lebanon for 18 years, thousands of Israeli soldiers died in Lebanon during that 18-year period in this long war of attrition, which really had no end in sight. Uh, so any endgame that puts Israel permanently in charge of Gaza, I think that would also be a losing situation, just like having Hamas still in power would be a loss. Any situation where we're still policing them would be a loss as well. I just hope the leaders are intelligent enough and humble enough to recognize that help is help is needed how likely is it that there will be additional attacks from the north i think you forget who you're talking to you're talking to uh, an author and comedian not, not a world policy expert however from what i'm hearing you know the the general the general vibe that i hear is that if hezbollah really wanted to attack in a major way they would have by now they would have had their opportunity now that american carriers are nearby with American fighter jets. It's less likely. Um, that's what I'm hearing. I also think that at the end of the day, a lot of it is just about showing support and waving a little flag that says, hey, we're we're with you, Hamas. This is our battle too. Uh, when at the end of the day, they don't really want to get involved. I think that's the number one most likely option. 
Although other people believe that this could literally turn into World War III. And that's the other thing about what's going on right now. Nobody knows. There's never, I've never seen Israelis with such question marks about the own their own future. Nobody knows where this is headed. Nobody knows what the next six months will look like. Just to pivot a little bit, uh, the reform movement's Israel summer trip program called Yala Israel, uh, they, you know, nifty. They sent out an email this week, said that they're delaying registration for their summer trips. Probably the right moves. I don't know if parents would feel comfortable sending, you know, signing their kids up, putting in deposits for this summer, but nobody knows what June will look like or even what December would look like. I can honestly say from a personal level, this has been the longest 18 days of my life. I can never remember two and a half weeks feeling like such a long time um, because every day is its is its own narrative that unfolds with its own story. And um, you know that's why it's just impossible to predict what's going to happen. Nobody knows what the Middle East will look like in, in half a year or even a year. But what I am hearing is people are saying, you know what, this is going to be, this is going to redefine Israel. Israelis will not vote the same after this. We will not allocate our budgets the same. Sort of a little note on that story is that we saw a number of Haredim, ultra-Orthodox Israeli Jews, who normally are exempt and who are exempt from army service. We saw 2,000 this week is the number I heard request, call up the military and said, how can we volunteer for service? And I think the army inducted its first group of uh, 150 or a few hundred uh, yesterday. I mean, this this is monumental. And any other time that this were to happen, this would be the lead story. And obviously, it's going to be a, a somewhat of a buried story because of everything else going on. But I think this is a an example of the seismic shift that is going to happen in Israel. This country will never be the same. I think what Israelis agree is that the end game here is not, ah, now it's back to normal the way it was on October 6th of 2023. This, that Israel's done. That Israel is over, whether it's politically, financially, uh, civilians, how they participate in society. It's going to be different from this point forward. So that is why I also believe that we're actually going to see a stronger Israel emerge. However, it's not going to emerge necessarily in one year. Or even five, this could be the event that shapes Israel in 10, in 20 years. We live in an, a world of instant knowledge with the internet and 24-hour news, but we have to sort of let go of the present moment and have faith that over 10, 20 years, this will make for a stronger Israel, even though it's so difficult to see right now. Uh, <laughs> Great question from someone. The woman who spoke yesterday, her husband is still in captivity. What is she supposed to say? Yes, that's definitely possible that this woman who stepped up to the microphone said that her Hamas captors were nice and that she wasn't mistreated just because she wants to protect her husband. However, I, I actually don't think that's the case. Again, this is just Joel talking. I, if you saw the passion with which she spoke, like it, it seems, even though she was often whispering, it seems that she was truly speaking from the heart. I also, if you know a little bit about who this family is, they were very much involved in peace, peaceful relationships with the Arab Gaza community. From what I heard, they would volunteer to bring Gazans 
who needed health care into Israel and arrange for them to get uh, doctor visits and other health care that wasn't available to them in Gaza. Apparently, her husband speaks very good Arabic. So these are people who believe in the peace cause who would have been against the government from the beginning. Um, I don't think she was just putting on a bluff. Although that's certainly some Israelis are definitely saying that. Like, what do you what do you think you, as she would say? And uh, others have said, well, what, for all we know, that the people she was driving into Gaza for healthcare were spying and doing intelligence recon. Now, certainly a possibility as well. My instinct is that she was telling the truth, knowing her background and her biography. I think she was being honest here. But uh, that's you know, a lot of this is a mind game, and, and you can't know for sure. It's a great question, a great point. Uh, wasn't one of the released hostages someone who worked with the Palestinians? Yes. No, I didn't even see that question, but I answered it ahead of time. How does Israel coexist with Jordan? Anything there that is a useful that is useful uh, for the future with others? You know, Israel made peace with Jordan, I believe, it was in 1994. I visited Jordan on day two of the peace that we had peace with Jordan. It was the fall of my junior year of college, and I was in Israel and uh, had some time off, and so I went to Jordan and saw Petra. That peace has maintained for the most part. I'm not sure why that has. Uh, certainly, there's no real disputed territory with Jordan, and uh, I think that's a, a big factor here. Um, also, with Egypt, we've had a relatively decent peace uh, that's held up, uh, but that you know that's not the same as you know those are sovereign nations um, with more stable populations, and that's not the same as you know what's happening in the West Bank and Gaza Strip. So I don't think we can just say whatever we're doing there, we should do we should do here as well. You saw the so someone said that they saw the woman on CNN. Her translation was she got her medications and a doctor came every two days. I mean, we would, we would hope. Um, you know, I'm sort of attached to this case of we all know someone, and one of them is Hirsch uh, Poland. Um, his father is a Camp Ramah, Wisconsin alum, who I you know knew very tangentially when we were at Camp Ramah. Um, but he, you know, his arm was blown off from a grenade and there was a lot of concern as how is he even going to survive if he, you know, if he tied his own tourniquet. I think it was a medic in the army, if I'm not mistaken. He was able to tie his own tourniquet when he was in this room and grenades were thrown in and his arm was blown off. Uh, if you haven't seen the video, there's a really a beautiful video online of his parents leaving their home in Jerusalem to fly to the U.S. to push for his release and the release of other hostages. And you see people gathered outside singing, I believe it was Tihilim psalms as they leave the house. And, you know, I just wish the world could see that video too. It really shows you what Israel stands for, what the Jewish people believe in when we're at our best. And, you know, that was one of our best moments. Um, but that just goes back to the healthcare that I would hope they would get care because there are many who who were injured. Um, we want to believe, even if it seems absurd that they would take care of our hostages, don't I think we want to believe it just to try to get through this. We sort of have to believe uh, even even in the absurd at times like this. Uh, that I think that's all the questions for now. Okay, great. So let me go back to a few other points that I had. Um, Daily life, what is happening daily life-wise? Well, there have been some changes on that front as well. Uh, my kid is now back in school for half a day. And just to, just to be clear, it's never really a full day of school in Israel. A typical school day is 8.30 in the morning to 1.30 in the afternoon for a you know middle schooler. 
Um, but now it's even shorter. And on their first day today, they had, uh, I think, an, about an hour of drills where they went to the bomb shelter and learned what to do if a siren went off. So to that extent that they're going back to school, life is slowly getting back to normal. Another one of my kids is a waitress in a restaurant, and she said she worked last night and the restaurant was full and that she didn't see that people were sad and hushed and mourning. Um, and this is both good and bad. I think it's good because it's a testament to really what I believe are the most resilient people on earth. I don't think anyone is as resilient as Israelis. But at the same, at the same time, it, I must admit, it's a little bit sad to me uh, how quickly we human beings can adapt to a situation and go to a restaurant. And look, I find this with myself as well. You know, I, I'm in the U.S., I've been so busy preparing for live events and these Zooms and writing, but you know, I found some time to watch NFL football, which I don't usually get to do in Israel, and I did that here, and I was almost a little ashamed of myself that I was able to give myself an hour break to do that, and, and a little disappointed at how, at how I could care about football when there are so many other bigger issues happening. But at the same time, what would the alternative be? That nobody go to a restaurant? That nobody do anything normal? Uh, people are still volunteering. People are still engaged and caring. It's not like we've cut ourselves off completely. Uh, so I think it's okay that we give ourselves a break. But there is that element, especially because of the hostages, of just, just how normal can we be. But in that sense, Israel is getting a little bit back to normal um, with you know going to live school. Parents are certainly cautious. You know, I've heard a, a lot of parents talk about you know driving their kids to school when they would normally walk or having them uh, walk with friends as opposed to walk alone. There's, And I think that's one of the saddest parts of all here, that Jews in their own country were suddenly on guard about being attacked in our own country. And that's one of the psychological changes that this event this you know this event has inflicted upon us this attack did not in, occur in you know like the Munich Olympics in 72 but you know in a foreign country this happened in our own country when we had our own army it was not supposed to happen and another element i should add is what makes it so hard for israelis is that every day we're learning more and more more videos come out more people who work in the CSI sort of body identification unit are speaking about what they're seeing. It's come out now that there are certain bodies that will probably never be identified or maybe only after years after extensive DNA testing that the bodies were so mutilated and so burned that they're just they're unable to. And I don't I don't say that because I want to be graphic with you. I want to I say that to you just to show you how how shaken Israelis are by the fact that we can't just put this to bed. You know, we can't just say, wow, this is terrible. Our athletes were murdered at the Olympics. What's next? It's still ongoing and we're learning more and more and every day is more horrifying. And uh, that keeps this, that it keeps this tragedy alive in a way that others haven't uh, in the past. A question or a statement just came in that the Queen of Jordan, echoing her husband today in an interview, chastened the West and the world for a double standard when it comes to treatment of Palestinians. Will this rhetoric affect Jordan-Israel relations? Wow. Harold, you think I'm a lot smarter than I am. Um, I don't know if it will affect relations with Jordan and Israel. What I can, I think certainly if the, if the king says, or the queen says something on television, it probably would. 
And uh, I don't know that Jordanians necessarily love Israel anyway, um, but I think the bigger issue here is how quickly the narrative can change. I think, I mean, already I'm seeing that the lead stories on CNN, certainly MSNBC, but on CNN are the the Gaza side of the story and what's happening to the civilians and the children. And look, I am not saying that that's not important. We don't want civilians to die. However, it shows you how quickly the memory is short. And these atrocities occurred in Israel over two weeks ago. And what they've been, you know, the image that's now dominant is for the most part, the bombings in Gaza and huge explosions. And it really feeds into the narrative of, I think what the average American thinks is, yeah, what happened to those Israelis is terrible. But do you see what Israel is doing by bombing the entire population with no realization that the only way to get Hamas is to take down certain buildings and that their rocket launchers are literally next to hospitals? And it's not just that it's hard to communicate, but even when the truth is out there, the press won't. I think one of the most infuriating things from this whole experience, beside the events itself, is how the New York Times and other outlets reported on the hospital blowing up. And yes, I think yesterday the New York Times had a small retraction saying that it relied too much on Hamas testimony, but it's too little too late. Uh, and it just shows you how quickly these supposedly, you know, the New York Times, all the news that's fit to print, how quickly these journalists who hold themselves up as the beacon of journalism, uh, they have an agenda as well. They don't do their fact checking. And um, it's really sick. And people ask me, what can I do to help? And I I'll put that website up again, supportforisrael.com, which lists all, you know, many of the nonprofits who are helping support the number four israel.com. But another thing you can do, you can cancel your subscription to the New York Times. I mean, that's what I, I've, I've spoken. I've, it's funny. I've spoken to some Jews who were really outraged by this. And I said, well, why don't you just cancel your subscription to the New York Times? And they said, uh, yeah, and they didn't really give an answer, meaning they're still subscribed. And look, every subscription supports them. So I, I think it's time to cut the cord. But again, that's Joel talking, um, you know, not uh, not the foreign policy expert who maybe you some of you think I am. Is there any talk in Israel about Gaza going back to Egyptian control? Yes, there is. But there's also agreement that Egypt doesn't want them. And this is sort of the big joke here, if you can call it that, is that the Palestinians, huh, someone someone said it to, to me like this, the other, I referred to him before, he said the Palestinians are the Jews of the Arab world, meaning that nobody wants to take them in. Everyone wants to use them as a bargaining chip and a way to, to hate Israel and to get back at America. But at the end of the day, you know, nobody actually wants to take the Palestinians in. Uh, so could Egypt? Yeah, there's land, but they don't want them. And Jordan could absorb them. I think most Jordanians are, of, or many Jordanians are of sort of, you know, we're living in the land that was, the uh, you know, West Bankish, Palestinian, et cetera. But no one wants them. And so that's a, a solution that I would not necessarily count on. I'm more in favor of some sort of international force taking control of Gaza and being, you know, it being the world's responsibility. And you could say, well, what's their motivation? I think we see the motivation. I think we saw, what, 65 German police officers injured when there was an uprising in a largely uh, Arab community in, in Berlin. 
Uh, I think other nations are seeing what happens when when their own Arab populations get angry and that there could be danger to them as well. So it's not just an Israel problem. I, I don't think they're saying it out loud, but I think they're realizing that it's a problem for them too. As someone who's lived in both Israel and the U.S., do I have any advice about how to work on changing the narrative on a person-to-person -person level? Do I have any specific advice for U.S. students at universities? Well, I think you sort of had the answer in your question. I think person-to-person -person level is the key. I personally do not think that social media posts and even interviews on TV are that effective, not because they're not good or high quality. I just think that the average person is already, first of, first of all, you've got the extremists and they're never going to change. But then you've got the average person who's already formed this narrative in their head. And I think the average person thinks that what happened to Israel was terrible, but also they think that Israel goes way overboard with bombing. Um, the entire population, not really understanding what's behind it. And I don't know that it's the nature of social media posts to really make an impact on people. I don't know many people who've really changed their mind because of it. Usually social media just tends to reinforce what you already, re already believe. And if you see something that goes against it, you just swipe past it or comment with hatred. Um, I think one-on-one, -on -one, small groups, I've been talking to a lot of groups in living rooms and you know, these are already people who are, you know, with us, but it's affecting them and giving them ideas of how to talk. They've often said, I have a neighbor, I have a friend who I'm actually really close with. And I was surprised to see them post this on their social media. And I think just having a conversation one-on-one, -on -one, not to try to proselytize and change huge opinions, but to show what Israel is really up against, um, that might be more of a key. You asked about university students, man, I do, I do not envy university students right now. I I don't know. I know college students who've literally told me they don't feel safe on their campus. Literally do not feel safe with a Magen David Star of David necklace that they tuck it inside their shirt or don't wear it. Uh, they wear they tend to wear a kippah, but instead they wear a hat over their kippah. I mean, what year is this? You know, this, it's this is 2023, and you're afraid to be Jewish on a college campus, but. Uh, I, I guess the only advice I have is find community. Don't go it alone, but make sure you're, you know, find community, whether it's Hillel or some other uh, group. But uh, I'm speaking at two universities. I'm going to Brown University next week, which is as liberal as they come. So how about next week? I'll report on what that visit to Brown was like. And then the University of Texas the week uh, after that. Um, I do want to mention I spoke this year, this uh, last, this past week at a small college in Massachusetts called Elms College, which is pretty much a Catholic school, although the students are from all backgrounds. And they just wanted to bring in someone to talk about the situation. And I must say, their knowledge of the Middle East was so non-existent. It was zero. In a way, it was refreshing because I think we can sometimes believe that everyone out there is either for us or against us. And it could be that we're seeing a lot of extremists who are against us, but that there is a huge population out there who just doesn't know and who are actually, as we say in Hebrew, tahor, meaning pure, whose minds are still blank enough on this issue that we can make a difference. So as infuriating as it is to see people protesting Israel, we shouldn't let that be the only narrative. There are a lot of people out there whose minds, I can't say can be changed because we're not even changing. We might be the first ones to plant the seed. So there's a lot of fertile ground out there for us to make a difference. 
And I, th I think those are the ones we should target with our conversations and our group meetings, you know, even hosting something in your home for neighbors who don't know much, uh, as opposed to trying to go online and fight the, the, the anger and vitriol of the other side, which is never going to work. Um, Wow. So now I got to go back because a lot came in. Are there any online sources you'd recommend in Jewish to Jewish teens who are confused by all this and are swayed by the sentiment? Wow. You know, I Times of Israel is where I get a lot of information, but in terms of actually sorting out the narrative, I know Stand With Us has some good, good content and some very simple content made for teens to keep it in short, bytes of information really laying out um, what happened in 1947 with the United Nations voting to partition and then 48, as opposed to getting into these long paragraphs of text. I think the more we can keep it simple and factual, um, you know, so stand with us, I would check out, but I maybe for next week, that's an assignment for me is to find to find more things. Oh, and someone actually mentioned a few Instagram accounts, Zionism for Teens, perfect. And Emily in Tel Aviv, and someone said, I canceled my New York Times subscription years ago. And someone replied with a an okay sign. Um, Jewish News Syndicate. Yeah, uh, and this point was, I, don't I, I think many teens don't understand how the Palestinians are used and abused by Hamas. I talked to a Jewish day school today. I'm going to be in California in a couple of weeks, and the Jewish day school wanted me to come in. And I thought what they'd want me to come in was to talk about what Israelis are thinking. And these are kids who've been in Jewish day school for 9, 10, 11 years, high school students. But the teacher said what they mostly have questions about is the Palestinian side, why Israel is bombing Gaza when there are civilians there. So even kids who've been in day school their entire lives have a lot of questions about the Palestinian experience, how Ham they don't realize, like you said, that Hamas is using Palestinians. You know, I I got to say, I think we messed up somewhere along the line. I mean, we definitely messed up in our camps and schools by not telling maybe more of the story from the Palestinian side, because that's what's led to so many students turning away from Israel. But we also didn't push down hard enough on how our enemies use their own citizens against Israel. I think we just assume that um, a certain narrative that was a little more parv and pro-Israel would cut it. And um, we, we, might have, we might have failed there, but this also might be a turning point in Jewish education as well. I think a lot of camps and day schools are now going to have to re-examine how we teach and talk about Israel, because certainly the education I got at my Solomon Schechter a long time, time ago uh, wouldn't work and, and wouldn't be affected now. Club Z. Hey, Marsha. Um, yeah, I'm going to be at Club Z in January. And um, so I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled to be there. Uh, and if you want to, if you don't know, yeah, Club Z is a great uh, organization to check out for teens. Um, I, you can type in, Marsha, if you want to type in the website, I'll share it. It might just be clubz.com or clubz.org, but I'll, um, I'll look. The ADL is, is good information. .org, clubz .org. Club Z. Hey, Marsha. Look at, she's so chutzpah to go off, mute, and say it, but it's important. Let me type it in right now. Clubz.org. So history question. When did some residents in the Holy Land begin to call themselves Palestinians? I met Arabs, but not Palestinians. I mean, yeah, this is a big... This is a big point of contention. Even that, I mean, there, there was no country of Palestine. And I'm not saying this as someone who's 
totally right wing and tra I mean, look it up. There was never a country of Palestine, but it shows you how important language is. It shows you how important just normal conversation are and in the in the normal conversation is and when certain words just get totally um adapted uh into the into the lexicon then yeah we've we've all begun we we all refer to them as palestinians at this point even though that's really a name that doesn't have any sort of national uh basis and that's that's shaped the narrative and i'm sure if you were to ask the average american why they're called palestinians they would say well because obviously they lived in the country of Palestine before there were Jews who came there and took it over. Um, so that's uh, that's another way that we <laughs> this narrative gets co-opted. Um, I'll read this last comment and then we'll go on. Arab-Palestinians identity began in, to bud in the 1920s, but fully came in the 1960s while Yasser Arafat was getting KGB backing. Yes, Yasser Arafat um, certainly had a lot to do with it. And and uh, I think that feed, you know, that if a lot of people are mystified with why so many liberals, maybe it's the LGBTQ community or others support, um, support the, the, not necessarily Hamas, but the Palestinian people. And then by virtue of that Hamas, I think it's because somehow along the lines, the, you know, the PLO, the Kafia, these all became signs of rebellion against, power rebellion against the oppressor as someone explained it to me many young people they see the world today in very stark terms the oppressors and the oppressed and that's it there's really no other room for nuance or history or what happened and israel uh, falls into the category in their mind as the oppressor and that's all they need to know that's all they're interested in knowing um, and that's enough for them to fuel their own animosity toward israel and support of even hamas uh, there's no other fact-checking needed. Um, it's just clear because it's a duality. Uh, and that's something we've got to, you know, that's got something we have to address as well. So finally, I want to conclude and conclude with this topic. I always think this will go half an hour and already we're into minute 47. But I want to mention that there is a little bit of humor already going around Israel um, at this time. And you could say, is it too soon? Is it appropriate? Uh, and And I actually think it's, it's not too soon. Um, I think this is a healthy thing. Um, I think that as a way of coping, you know, humor helps alleviate some of the stress. Uh, no one is saying that everything is hunky hunky dory, but there, we're in, we're allowing ourselves to laugh a little bit. It's some of the um, the absurdities of the situation. And uh, let me find my. I'm trying to find my screen share button. Yeah. No, this is it. I'm not sorry. I'm not able to find my uh, screen share. Ah, here it is. So I'm going to share my screen. So this is a social media post that's going around Israel right now. Let me remove this stuff. It says, you may have seen this. It says, Chaylim ba'aza mevakshim me'eshkenazim lafsik lishloch lahem ochel gam kacha so it means soldiers in Gaza, soldiers serving near Gaza, are asking Ashkenazim, Ashkenazi Jews, to please stop sending food. The situation is already a very difficult one. And the idea here is it, there's really two things happening here. Number one is that one way that Israelis are volunteering is that they are cooking for the soldiers on the borders in the south and in the north. Um, in sending food down. It's the way Israelis are coming together to support our troops. 
But at the same time, one of the jokes is this, you know, the whole stereotype that uh, unlike Sephardic and Mizrahi cooking, which is spicy and exciting, that Ashkenazi cooking with a lack of spices and is just boring and bland and uh, unbearable. So this joke is uh, it's really playing on those two elements happening at the same time. And it's a that's a very popular one going around the country. The idea that stop sending your Ashkenazi food. Uh, we're already kind of having a difficult situation. Don't make it worse. Um, and as a comedian, you know, it, I'm happy to see that. I'm happy to see that humor is starting to creep back in. Uh, Israelis often start joking about things way before other people, other populations would, um, because, um, you know, we're, it's just we live in this pressure cooker and we've always had to deal with uh, adversity and humor is one of the things that helps us get through it. And even their sketch comedy show, which is uh Eretz Nehederet, sort of like Saturday Night Live, has already begun running some sketches, and they're always tasteful, and they're always done very carefully and in a way that doesn't make fun of the victims, but makes fun of more how Israelis cope and how absurd Israelis can be in these situations, because we do become um, something special happens in Israel during these very difficult times, but uh, also you see how different we are, and so the humor makes fun of those differences. Inside Israel is produced by 188th Crybaby Productions, Incorporated. Episodes are recorded online before a live audience. To get the links to future recordings, sign up at joelchaznoff.com slash podcast. If you have questions, comments, or to give feedback, and I know with all those Jewish listeners out there, you have feedback, drop us a note at joel at joelchaznoff.com. To learn more about me, my comedy, and books, and to sign up for my newsletter, Hebrew is Magic, you can do that at joelchaznoff.com. Thanks for listening.